Hello again, and welcome back to Farndon Film. Continuing on with our action, crime and thriller thread of episodes, today we return to the auteur series for a look at the films of director and producer David Fincher. Once again I've been joined by Sam, and our chat was recorded over a video conferencing app, so I can only apologise for any difference or distortion in the usual audio quality. That being said, let's get into it. We'll kick off with some stuff that he did before he kind of got into films. So he started out doing a lot of music videos. And I kind oh, of yeah. just took a, I took a screen grab of quite a few of them. Oh, I so didn't know that. He did, a, he did a lot for Rick Springfield in the early 80s. They were kind of like how he started out. Then he moved into sort of more soft rock with Foreigner and things like that. He did a couple of Paul Abdul ones. And then he did a lot for Madonna, including Vogue. So he directed the Vogue video, which, again, I didn't really know about until we'd kind of researched it. He did oh. a couple for Michael Jackson. So he did Who Is It and... Oh no, I said a couple for Michael Jackson. They did one for Michael Jackson. They did Who Is It? <laughs> I, I, I read it underneath as well. And then the most recent one he's done is Suit and Tie for Justin Timberlake and Jay Z. So, right. you know, he, he, I mean, he dropped off sort of mid to early 90s, didn't do many, and he's only done a couple since then because obviously his filmmaking career's kind of boomed since then. Before that, he in 1983 he was an assistant cameraman on Return of the Jedi, and yeah. in 84 he was a photography assistant for Temple Doom, Indiana Jones, and Neverending Story. After I proposed the idea of doing the David Fincher podcast, I thought to myself, oh yeah, because I really like these films and I really like these films, but I bet there's loads that I've not got round to. And actually, when you look at it, I am only missing one. I've not seen The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I've seen the rest of them. So I thought, actually, that's not too bad then. But, well, you know, we'll go in order. We'll get to Benjamin Button when we get to Benjamin Button. But okay. we'll start off in 92 with the one that he disowns straight off, which is Alien 3. This one faced a lot of problems during production. They were shooting without a script. They had a number of different screenwriters and different directors attached. David Fincher was brought in to direct it after a proposed version with Vincent Ward as director got cancelled during pre-production. It was released in 1992 and it underperformed at the American box office, and it earned over $100 million outside of North America. It received mixed reviews and was regarded as inferior to the previous instalments. Fincher has since disowned the film, blaming studio interference and deadlines. I think we kind of touched upon it a little bit when we mentioned Aliens in the 80s podcast. I don't think any of us are fans of this, necessarily. It loses a lot of that kind of horror inflection of the first one. It loses a lot of the kind of action of the second one. And they're trying to make it a dystopian future. But weirdly, when they try and do dystopian future, they kind of strip everything away. There's no technology. And it's like, oh, we've, been, we've all been scorned by technology. Here we are. We're all trying to survive on the burst scraps that we've got. We're the inmates. We're the violent inmates. And, yeah, there's just an alien in this. Uh, yeah, no, I thought this was a bit naff, to be honest. Yeah, it found itself in no man's land, like you said, after the first one, that horror feeling. Then the second one with the action. The third one found itself in a... You can tell there were problems behind the scenes, I think, because it translates into the film. I think that like there's some good things. Like There's always good things to take out of every type of project. And I think that what they did, it was quite interesting, the idea. Uh, the idea behind, oh, they crash land and they're, on, they're at this prison and the alien gets out. And I suppose it was, even though it wasn't what I wanted, it was interesting how they kill off Newt and a couple of the Marines that were left over. I thought that was quite like an interesting idea, even though I didn't like it. It still was a decent idea. But I just felt that 
when when we got there, it, the, the I didn't buy into the characters. I think none of them characters were in the in the uh, second one. I loved the Marines. Um, in the first one, I loved the crew, but I didn't buy into any of the prisoners. I didn't really care if they died or lived. The only one I liked was Ripley, and that's yeah. because probably she's a bit duller in the third one. But I liked her from the other films, so you were invested in her. But like none of the prisoners I cared about, even if they, the only actually I was more upset when the dog got killed and it, and it bursts out the dog. I was well upset about that. I was like, flipping dog had to go and, you know, get get killed. The other ones, I'm not really too fussed about. They're all, they're not likeable characters, are they? They, they look like, because, you know, because they try and paint them as prisoners. Um, they try and give them this edge where they're just sort of looking out for themselves a little bit and they're, they're a little bit sort of um, isolated there and they've not got good social skills. I didn't really, uh, I didn't really connect with it. One thing that I thought was interesting about this, and then we'll leave Alien 3 where it is, because I'm assuming David Fincher would want us to do that anyway, um, is apparently in 2003, a revised version of the film known as The Assembly Cut was released without Fincher's involvement and received a warmer reception. Now, I've not seen that version. I'm not necessarily going to go and seek out that version. But I just find it strange that we are in this kind of period. I know this was 2003. We're like, release the Snyder Cut, and we're finally getting the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And now, like the last week on Twitter, there was release the Aya Cut of Suicide Squad. And it's, it's like, you can't... To Batman Forever as well, release... Yeah, that... died, They said, release the, the Batman Darker Cut. I'm like, what the hell? So there's a, there's a darker cut for everything, apparently. There's a darker... But this is, it's like, are you just getting to a point where you see a bad film and just go, oh, wait a minute, the director didn't mean to release this one, there's a different cut out there somewhere. Nah, it's just allowed to be bad. Let's just That's say right. that it's bad. Something didn't go well here. Right, jumping forward, 1995, this is where we start getting the good ones. Seven. So the American psychological crime thriller directed by Fincher, starring Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kevin Spacey, tells the story of David Mills, a detective who partners with the retiring William Somerset to track down a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as a motif in his murders. The screenplay was influenced by the Time Walker, so this is uh, Andrew Kevin Walker who wrote the screenplay, spent in New York trying to make it as a writer. Principal photography took place in Los Angeles, with the last scene being filmed in California, and the film's budget was $33 million. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 1995, and it was well received by, by critics who praised the dark style, brutality, and themes. I have a really weird relationship with Seven, in that now, and if you asked me, I love it, and that when we get round to doing our sort of 90 to 95 top 10, yeah. it'll be in there somewhere. But... If you were to ask me, say, when I was in school, I'd say that I, did, I hated it and I didn't like it. And um, that comes from, I remember when I was younger, I must have been about 10 or 11. And I remember being stood in the front room of a family friend's house. And we were all about to go. So, like, you know, my mum, my stepdad, my sisters, we're all about to leave. He just said, and my mum says to my stepdad, oh, come on, we know we're going to go now. And he went, oh, wait one minute. Let me just watch this bit because this is where they find the dead body. And I looked towards the TV and it was seven. And it was the bit where they go into the room with the sloth character. And then all of a sudden he wakes up and he starts coughing. That frightened the life out of me, right? To a point where I always knew. And from that point on, I was like, right, if I'm going to avoid a film, I'm going to avoid that film. Then fast forward a couple of years and I just started speaking to one of my best mates now, Daniel. And for my birthday, he comes into school and he, he says, oh, this is for you. And it was the DVD of Seven. 
right? And in a really kind of like crap way, I suppose, I went, that film's rubbish. I don't like that film. You can keep it. And he kept it. And then it was only recently and when I got to university where I thought, you know what, let's give it a watch. And now I bleeding love it. It's one of those thrillers that's like, yeah, I'll go back to it all the time. And I've mentioned films like this on the podcast before where if we're if we're upstairs and we're going to bed and whatever and we're just putting something on, if Seven is on Sky Movies, I pick it, Amy picks it, you know, it's on all the time, basically. We keep watching that scene where um, they go and try and find the John Doe's house and Brad Pitt runs after him out down the window, outside, out, you know, down the alley and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. But again, you know, this one, I think this is where you kind of get the idea of who Fincher really is as a director, the kind of stuff that he wants to do. That opening sequence with the credits going over the top is insane. And it links to something that we'll talk about later on with Girl with Dragon Tattoo. You know, the kind of the score to it, the cinematography, the style, that dark style that was praised. I just think, yeah, I think it's great. Where, where are you on seven? Best one. It's his best one for me. Um, and it was like the one he made after Alien, but it's his best one. Um, I'm drawn to them sort of films anyway, when there's sort of like mystery, uh, you have to find the, the perpetrator. Like I am into that. The Bone Collector sort of has that sort of feel to it as well. Um, but this was like another level. This was like the sort of benchmark, really, for these type of films. It's got everything. Uh, Spacey, to be honest, it's not the type of uh, enemy you would expect in Spacey, but it, it's so clever. And I bought into the story. Like I think Brad Pitt does a really good job as the arrogant cop who, who's sort of like headstrong and dives into everything. And there's Morgan Freeman, who's his counterbalance, who sort of like has seen a lot of dark things and wants to protect him from this world a little bit, really. Especially when he found out that Gwyneth Paltrow's pregnant and it's just not the right job to be in. And obviously Brad Pitt's so, so eager to do well that he sort of goes down the rabbit hole in a way. And that leads into the ultimate destruction at the end. And it's so clever how the film's done. Um, but I bought into it massively. I thought it was clever how they did the the deadly sins and everything, and just the twist at the end. I mean, i never seen that coming, and it has, like, a proper shock factor. Um, and I'd never really seen anything that's reached them highs, but the tone was something new, and he carries that on into his films. Even in things like Gone Girl, there's always, like, a devious tone to it. Um, and he plays it, it. It was just a really good film. It's his best one for me, and it's a shame because I would like him to do a, a few more of them, but he sort of stepped away from that sort of thing. He, he did the one and then just kind of moved away from it. I would have liked him to see at least do maybe two or three more in that mould. And yeah. he hasn't, and I would have liked to see more, but maybe he's just, uh, you know, he likes to um, express himself and try different genres and different things, but it's his best, mate. Um, I liked it from the start. When did I watch it, though? I didn't watch it at the time. Um, I'm trying to think when I watched it, you know. I can't actually tell you when I first watched it. I think I was in my teens, um, and it had been mentioned to me. I wasn't afraid of it, but I understand why you were at that age, mm. because that scene is is shocking, um, yeah. really, really dark. Um, but just the whole idea of when you're expecting it to be someone like really devious, and it is, but it's more a game, isn't it, to him? It's, it's yeah. less about him just doing it for the fun of it. It's more about this bigger meaning in his head. It has like religious connotations and it brings in Dante's Inferno and all this sort of thing, divine comedy. So it goes down that sort of route. But yeah, it's his best one. Best one for me. It's that scene where Kevin Spacey just follows them all into the into the kind of, I suppose it's the police station. And he just yeah. goes, detective, 
detective and then he just shouts detective they turn around the camera turns around we see him he's stood there like this weedy looking guy you you wouldn't think twice of looks like he works in a video shop and he's dripping with blood and it's that mixture of intelligence and then actually this guy's a psychopath because he's showing no emotion here whatsoever I just again it's just something that you could just go back to all the time he's already committed the crime hasn't he yeah but I yeah. suppose that's kind of what he's getting at in a lot of his films. Because if we jump forward to 97, we get to the game. Have you seen the game? Now, this is now you said to, to me a second ago that with Fincher, the one you hadn't seen was uh, Benjamin Button. Yeah. This is the one I haven't seen. So the game I have not seen. But I keep looking at it thinking I really should maybe watch this because he's just done it two years after seven, I believe. Um, Michael Douglas in it. But again, it's a different tone, I think. So it's a bit different. So you're going to have to fill in some of the gaps here with this one, how you yeah. rate this film. Well, I really like it. And I must admit, I think I've only seen it the once, maybe right. twice. Because I remember watching this at a time where I was in uni. And what I did at the kind of final two winters of when I was at uni is that I worked at HMV doing the kind of Christmas shifts. And I think I think this would have been 2011, Amy, my now wife, was back home. I was in Bangor in North Wales on my Todd doing all these shifts. And what I'd start doing is after some shifts, if I had nothing to do, I'd buy a film from the shop. I'd go home and watch it that night, you know, and then whatever. And I just remember thinking to myself, I've not seen this. I quite like David Fincher's stuff. I'm going to, this was pre-Go with the Dragon Tattoo, knowing that I'm going to go and watch it. So yeah, I'll give it a go. And it's such a strange film in that, so it is, it's Michael Douglas and it's Sean Penn. And it's the idea that wealthy investment banker, so that's Michael Douglas, is given a gift by his brother, Sean Penn. And the idea is that it's a game that kind of integrates into his life in really weird ways. There's a lot of different kind of things that go on. Basically, he goes through his everyday life not knowing if he's being pranked by his brother at certain points, not knowing if his brother's just put this little thing together and he's questioning everything and he's beginning to question what's real and what's not. And then the audience begins to question, like, well, why is he? Why is his brother doing this to him? What's yeah, this yeah. weird relationship that they've got? And then there's actually hints of a bigger conspiracy that goes on. I'm not necessarily going to spoil it because I think you should go and watch it. But, I mean, critics loved it. It just underperformed at the box office especially compared to Seven. So I think he was trying to go a little bit too broad here in the kind of enigma and thinking that he was getting the audience to do, whereas Seven was maybe a little bit more straightforward. Is the twist worthwhile at the end? Yes. Yeah. It is, because yeah. I'm just thinking, I don't know how he can forgive his brother from what I'm hearing here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really strange, and it almost turns into like a, I suppose a character study of these two people, like who are these two people? You know, right. who is Michael Douglas? Who is Sean Penn? Um, the, I always remember the poster because the poster's kind of got, I think it's Michael Douglas's face and there's like a jigsaw piece missing out of it. And it, that's the idea. And it reminded me a lot of Saw, weirdly, because I'd seen Saw first and then gone back to it. And I thought, all oh, right, is this, is this where they've kind of got the inspiration from that from? But I think this is a lesser known one of Finch's back catalogue. And it's actually been picked up by Arrow Films, who re-release a lot of kind of nostalgic cult films. Um, and it's got, I think it's getting a big kind of limited edition box set on Monday. So I think more and more people are kind of getting round to it. Yeah, I can just see 
poster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, so jump forward ahead two years. So, you know, 95, 97, 99. And 99, we get probably the most famous Fincher film, which is Fight Club. So, again, back to Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helen Bonham Carter, based on the 96 novel by Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, Norton plays the unnamed narrator who is discontented with his white-collar job. He forms a fight club with soap salesman Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, and becomes embroiled in a relationship with him and a destitute woman, Marla Singer, played by Helena Bonham Carter. Now, the novel was optioned by Fox 2000, and uh, they hired a guy called Jim Ulls to write the film, the, the film adaptation. Finches was selected because he really enjoyed the story. Apparently, he and the cast confirmed, con- compared Fight Club to things like Rebel Without a Cause and The Graduate, because there was supposed to be this conflict of generations that was going on and the kind of value system of advertising that was going on in the film. Originally, the studio didn't like it whatsoever. Um, They restructured Finch's marketing campaign to try and reduce the anticipated losses, because I would imagine that maybe the initial marketing campaign that Fincher came up with was a little bit more, again, enigma-based, a little bit more of a mystery, not necessarily appealing too many people to it. Whereas if you put a topless Brad Pitt on a picture in 1999, there's going to be a lot of people. And, and you know, that kind of iconic pose of him now where he's just had a fight at Fight Club and people are going to go, oh, that looks all right. There's a bit of fighting in that. We'll go and watch that. Whereas actually it's much, it's a much different film than that, I would say. It failed to meet the studio's expectations at the box office and received polarised reactions to the critics. It was cited as one of the most controversial and talked about films of 1999. The Guardian saw it say it was, um, it was an omen of change in American political life and it had a groundbreaking visual, visual style. It later found commercial success with DVDs and is now an established film cult classic, um, which caused the media to revisit the film. And on the 10th anniversary, New York Times dubbed it as the defining cult movie of our time. Now, I'm not, I have a weird relationship with the word cult because yeah. I feel like people say a film is a cult film if it didn't do too well first, but then all of a sudden people like it when it gets to DVD or they find it on Netflix or whatever. And how everyone changes their mind and their opinion of it once it becomes a cult film. Yeah. If you watch it to begin with for the first time and you go, nah, that was a bit naff, that. But then all of a sudden when you get round to it and it's got this big cult following, it's like, well, hang on a minute, you have to like it because it's a cult film. I don't know if it works like that. But I feel like you're more enamoured with the culture now around that film rather than the film itself. And I feel like people get like that with Fight Club, whereas you'll 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 hear people, and I'm sure I did it before I watched it, who will say, yeah, actually, no, I did. I remember doing it before I watched it. I, I hadn't watched it by the time I got into college, and I was doing um, an enrichment at college called the Film Appreciation Club, right? And the teacher just referred to it as Film Club. And I was, I was, I got down there one day, and he said, "Oh, you wait for Film Club." And I said, "Yeah." And he went, "What's the first rule of Film Club?" And I went, "Don't talk about Film Club." But it's like I knew about it, and I knew about the kind of the dialogue and the lines and the the most memorable stuff coming out of it. But actually, I hadn't seen it at that point. One of the things, just before I ask you what you think about it, Sam, is I'd, I, when I eventually got round to watching it, I told a friend Elliot that I'd seen it, and it's his favorite film, or at least it was at that time. And the first thing he asked me about it was, he said, did you understand it? And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I said, I think so, but I might go back and watch it. And he went, 
nah, you won't understand it. You'll have to go back and watch it again anyway. And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it was almost like an elitist kind of, this is my favourite film. And it's one of these films that nobody understands it on the first go around. So you've got to go and watch it again. And it immediately kind of shrugs off your own opinion of it. But again, it's one of those that I've, I've come back to a couple of times. What is your understanding of it? That clearly, Edward Norton, I mean, I suppose I'd say spoilers, but this was, what, 20-ish years ago now. Edward Norton is clearly some sort of socio-psychopath. He has multiple personality disorder, and he switches between him and Tyler. I think that's the genuine thing. And uh, But there's more themes going on in terms of, like, the fight back against consumerism and materialism all that kind of ikea stuff where he says my front room looks like the ikea catalog and it all starts coming up with the you know the the kind of graphics on the screen but i mean i like it i like it enough to say that yeah this is probably a four star film for me if i was going out of five i wouldn't put it up there maybe with my favorite films of all time i think there was a period of time though where after i'd seen it I felt pressured into saying that it was one of my favourite films of all time just because it comes up on those lists all the time. But I think that, obviously, when we come to doing a top 10 in 1999, it's probably in there somewhere, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's way, way high up. What do you think? So my opinion on it is it's not my favourite David Fincher film. It's a strong film, and it has really unique ideas, which, again, give it that sort of cult, cult status as you as you talked about but this is the test of a good film for me would i put it in the dvd player or would i watch stream it again on and again and no not really um i liked it but would i watch it again no i think the acting's really good brad pitt helen ball carter edward norton at that period of time he makes a lot of good films but i don't know for, for me i know it's good and and when i've watched it but it's not something I'd go back over and over. It's not my favourite film. And I think you're right. I think you made a good point by saying, at the time, you probably would have said it was higher up on your list because it was at that time. Whereas now I look back, it really doesn't hold hold the same weight. Like, you know, some people probably think it really does. But for me, it, it's not It's not in my sort of top 20, no? It's similar to, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, to a film like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, were you've seen it you like it you know it's a good film you're probably not going to keep going back to it there are people that will say it's the favorite film because it's an intelligent choice to pick and there are probably still currently halls residency bedroom walls that belong to 18 year old lads who bought the poster of uma thurman on the bed and i would heard and brad pitt holding a soap bar or a bar of soap at the yeah you know, the local poster sale for three quid. But whether or not they actually like it or whether or not they've even seen it, you know, is, is kind of like the, the stronger point. Um, So weirdly, it's one of these things that's a f- infected pop culture. Everyone seems to be aware of it. You know, if you say to somebody, what's the first real Fight Club? You'll say, don't talk about Fight Club. Even the people who haven't seen it, because it's one of these kind of like, it's all kind of come out. Probably t- This is the thing about 99, I think. There was a lot of stuff turning the millennium. Matrix is similar to this. Yeah. that managed to just impact pop culture so much in that year that it's become a bit of a legacy thing. But yeah, I think I'm I'm with you in that I've, I think I own it on Blu-ray. I might even have a digital version of it if it's gone to 4K. And I can't remember the last time I watched it. I don't feel like I'm in a huge rush to watch it again. 
Right, so then we're jumping forward to uh, 2002. So this is three years after. Talk about a film that I think is massively underrated, that I love, and that actually this is one that I'll go back to a lot, is Panic Room. Yeah. And I don't think this gets the credit it deserves at all. And I don't think this gets the accolades it deserves at all. So this is uh, Jodie Foster and, Kurt and Kristen Stewart as mother and daughter, whose new home is invaded by burglars, burglar, burglars, there we go, played <laughs> by Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto and Dwight Yoakam. So the screenplay was uh, inspired by news coverage in 2000 about panic rooms. Now, I wasn't familiar with what a panic room was before I'd even seen this film. And now it's a bit like, if you, if you were to win the lottery and someone said to you, what do you want to put in your new house? It's like, oh, stick a panic room in that back corner. Yeah. Um, so this was Fincher's fifth feature film following Fight Club, as we just mentioned. And they kind of brought, to, brought together a lot of people that they'd worked with before in terms of cast and crew. They'd built the house and the panic room on a studio lot. So it's not actually a real house or anything like that. Originally, it was supposed to be Noel Kidman. Uh, Nicole Kidman, sorry, but she uh, left after aggravating an injury and they were worried about whether or not they're going to finish the film and then Jodie Foster stepped in. This is weirdly, it uses a lot of CGI and I don't think people notice that it uses a lot of CGI because it's done very subtly. And I think this is where David Fincher does CGI well. I suppose in a similar, he uses it a lot less than Christopher Nolan does, for example, but he uses it in the right places. So a lot of the CGI that was used was those kind of shots where we get the camera pans up and we go up through the floorboards down from downstairs into upstairs or up through the lift. Yeah. And that kind of transition is CGI. But I think that makes for a really fluid kind of experience, to be honest. So Foster became pregnant during the shooting schedule, actually, and it was suspended until after she gave birth, which I think is rare nowadays. If you were to get something like that, they wouldn't suspend shooting at all. They'd probably get somebody in and CGI the face over the top of them or something daft like that. Um, so it was released in the United States. It grossed 30 million on its opening weekend. It grossed 96 overall in the US and Canada, and it had a worldwide total of 196 million, which isn't setting the world alight, but it made its money back because the budget was only 48. And critics praised the film, um, and it's been assessed for its portrayal of childhood and feminism the elements of video surveillance and diabetes and its thematic approach to morality. Now, for me, this was one of those films that around about that time period, so probably 2002, maybe 2003-ish, were it, I, I didn't watch it in the cinema, but once it came available on like DVD and video, I was, I was kind of really getting into thrillers then. But what I would maybe call softer thrillers, because I feel like if you kind of go in from different ends of the spectrum, I feel like Panic Room is a bit of an opposite to Seven. There's not necessarily too much brutality in it. I know that there's a bit of violence towards the end of it, for example, but it's one of those kind of tense thrillers of, are they going to get in the room? Everything's a little bit tense. Oh, wait a minute, she's gone out of the room because she needs to go and get a phone from under the bed. Are they going to hear her? Is she going to get back into the room properly? And this is one, again, that I just I keep going back to all the time. And for whatever reason, I just really like it. And I don't know if it's... I think it's the I think it's the aesthetic. I think it's the kind of dark style to the film. And I think it's the performances as well, because I think everyone's great in it. I mean, I don't know what's going on with Jared Little's her, but you know, he can he can put cornrows in and if he really wants to put cornrows in, but I don't know what that's gonna be. Oh he's all over the place, isn't he? I mean, yeah. I don't mind him. I don't mind him as an actor. I'm not a fan of his Joker, but 
It's just like you don't have to keep doing wild things to do, you know, just to show us different bits. Um, I think Forrest Whitaker is really good in it because he, he brings this kind of peaceful sort of colour to the film. But as a burglar, I can't even say that word, as a robber, there we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like hamburglar. Why can I say hamburglar, but I can't say burglar? Burglar, have you heard that? It's disgraceful. Um, and you just think, I ain't going to mess with him. Look at the size of him. But yeah. actually, he's not violent at all. He's kind of in there like going, I'm here. We're ready to rob your house because there's millions of dollars that you're sitting on in that panic room. Just let us in and let us take it. No one's going to get hurt. We just want to come in and take your money. That's all we want. It's not even your money. Um, but <laughs> no, I really, yeah, I really enjoy this. And the one thing that still miffs me is it's not had a Blu-ray release in the UK yet. So it's not even like HD ready on physical disc. There's only a DVD, and that just annoys me as a bit of a HD snob. Um, but what do you think about Panic Room? So I've seen this film once, but when oh, I did... Oh, man. Well, no, but hear me out on this one. I enjoyed it a lot, but I watched it when I was a lot younger, and it's one of those where I'm eager to watch this one again. Yeah. Uh, and there's a list of films, actually, that when I watched it when I was younger, I enjoyed it, but I'd like to watch them back. And this is on the list. I enjoyed it. Um, and I think it's one of his strongest films as well. But I would like to go back and watch it and see what what my um, older eyes can can maybe pick up, if you like to put it yeah. like that. I was a bit young last time I watched it. Well, younger. So I think I could appreciate it more. Uh, you can lend me the DVD. Or, yeah, that's uh, fine, mate. And I can I can check it out. I think I like Jodie Foster. Um, and I, I just I just do. I think not just because of some of the roles, which I think she's a strong female lead. I think that she's not, she's always, I think, not given the credit for some of the performances she's put in. I think she's really strong, Jodie Foster. And I don't really know because I've not looked into her filmography, but I don't think she gets enough big roles or didn't when she was in her sort of prime, really. Like, you know, Nicole Kidman's cast before Jodie Foster in that one. Yeah. But Jodie Foster does that. I think she's, she's like, you know, she's probably not the heights of someone like, Sigourney Weaver, but she's pretty strong, wouldn't you say? And she's tough, and she—I think she really does give a real, real performance. Yeah, uh, I, I like that to her. And there's a young uh, Kristen Stewart in there. Um, I think diabetic as well, isn't she in the film? Is yeah, that right? So that's, that kind of plays a point in the film as well, where um, she becomes aware that she needs a medication because, again, yeah. with with kind of diabetes and stuff like that, and going back to you know the wife because she's type one diabetic is that there becomes a point where they need to have it after certain times. And if she goes either too long without eating or too long without taking the medication, that's when the effects kind of kick in. And it becomes a point where they, they kind of need to rush out and go and get it. And I think that, I think that's the point in the film where they actually ask the robbers to go and get it for them. And, you know, they observe her doing it and all that kind of stuff because she's having a fit and everything. Um, but, yeah, I think that's why it kind of comes back to it because actually it's a bit more of a truthful betrayal of diabetes because actually diabetes has really become a bit of a running joke in cinema and that you know if someone's eating a lot of sugary sweets they'll go up you're going to get diabetes and it's like that's really not the point and that's really not how it works so we'll jump forward again so this is actually quite a substantial gap here so five years he went before making another film again and this is zodiac now and i feel like zodiac is the point where Hollywood weirdly just went, this guy, David Fincher, can make good films, can't he? Oh, why have we not paid attention to him before? So this is a 2007 mystery thriller. Yeah. And it's based on 
the non-fiction book of the same name. And you've got Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. And a quite a substantial supporting cast as well. And it's basically the manhunt for the Zodiac Killer. So the Zodiac Killer is a serial murderer who terrorised San Francisco Bay in the late 60s and the early 70s. He taunted the police with letters, with blood-stained clothing and ciphers mailed to newspapers. And it still remains to this day being one of the most infamous unsolved crimes. And they spent 18 months conducting their own investigation into the research into the murders. And this is when he began to start shooting on high-speed cameras for slow motion sequences. He started doing a lot more digital stuff, not necessarily shooting on film. Massive critical response. Everybody loved it. It was in best top films of the year and best, you know, kind of top tens. Um, Fincher won the best director prize from the Dublin Film Festival. And in 2016, in a poll conducted by the BBC, it was ranked 12th in a list of the 21st century's greatest films. Um, again, this is one that I've seen probably all the way through, just to add to that, about three times. But I've seen specific scenes from it God knows how many times. Because, again, it's one of those films that if it's on, I'll stick it on. And because it's that, it's it's quite long. It's almost three hours long, I think, or maybe even just tipping yeah. the scale on that. And oh, I, yeah. I've got the... I've got the director's cut, so I think that even goes a little bit further than that. It's massive, it's a hugely scaled film. It jumps forward in time quite a lot. I think that it's really well anchored by Hall, by Ruffalo and Downey Jr. I think that's a perfect ensemble that they've got there. And for me, the only disappointment that I have from this film, and it's nothing necessarily negative on the film, is that by my first time watching it, and by the time I got to the end, I was so enveloped in this story that in the same way as to kind of like pin this into something that's popular at the minute these unsolved mysteries on netflix where you'll watch something for so long but then you'll click to yourself and go oh wait a minute they've still not found the person that did this so your film has no choice but ending on we still don't know what happened and then it's a bit like you don't necessarily get the narrative closure but you don't you get it. no but then if you can kind of look past that you're you're still into a great film here uh what do you think of zodiac Great film, yeah. Um, watched it later on, so not around 2007, much later on. Can't have been that many years ago, you know, maybe three years ago or something. Um, I agree fully. Um, um, the trio bring it to the table, don't they? Yeah. Downey Jr. just always plays, you know, I don't know, I just love him in that film. And Gyllenhaal's Hall's really good. He's obsessed as well. That obsession comes across. I love it. It's long, but Fincher films normally do air on that side anyway. And for me, I think that this was so popular, it actually influenced Mindhunter. Yeah. Um, because it definitely has that theme and feel in his recent work on that project. And you can just feel it throughout. And that's why I love Mindhunter just as much. And that, that, that always reminds me why I love Zodiac and then why I love Mindhunter. And they've got similar things, but he seems to play that so well. And throughout the film, I, I was disappointed, but I knew before I got into it that they never caught this killer. But it's done quite... There's a, there's a real... You know, in the films, you can sort of watch it and think, yeah, but that's just a film. There's a lot of it where I think, wow, like I think they've, they've, they've accurately sort of shown how this played out and how mm. very sort of battling to catch this killer and couldn't but there's a few times where i don't know you just want the closure don't you you just want it because you, you're so invested in jill and hall's journey <laughs> you yeah. want it 
get him, don't you? And at the end, like when he he, he visits, doesn't he visit Downey Junior? Like at some sort of like I don't know where it is. It's like some shack, and he's on like a boathouse, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's proper lost his way, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and that that's how I felt by the end of the film. <laughs> like, oh look at me, I'm shattered. <laughs> it is. It's like you don't get him. Uh, but no, it, it's a great film. Love it. I can watch that over and over. Um, and it always, he always has them. It, it's his themes that I like. There's always that darkness to his to his stuff. I just love his tone when he makes these films. They have that tone, don't they? But definitely, Mindhunter was one of my popular TV shows. And my wife hasn't seen a, a lot of David Fincher films, but she loves Mindhunter. And yeah. and, I, and when I showed her Zodiac, she loved that as well because there's that theme that runs throughout. But loved it, mate. Really good film. Crowd pleaser. Yeah, I don't really know what more to say to that because it's like when you when you discuss a great film, you can just keep going on how much you like it. But you know, um, so going, I mean, this surprised me as well that it was only the year after that he did Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah. Um, and again, I think you've seen half of this. I've not seen it at all. Mm. Um, so I I think we're gonna kind of gloss over this one a little bit, but I think this looks to be the most kind of successful film for him in terms of award success. So there was a lot of praise for his directing. It's the most successful film by the critics and we're glossing over it. <laughs> we are glossing over it. Yeah. Um, it's big film. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> this is his most famous. Nah, ah, sack it. Uh, yeah. So it received 13 Academy Award nominations, including best picture, best director, Best Actor and Supporting Actress, and it won for Art Direction, Makeup and Visual Effects. Now, I will be totally honest. I have a really narrow-minded opinion, and I will admit that it's a narrow-minded opinion, that I don't like films that are set in a certain time period. And it's typically films like, for example, and this always comes into my head, there was a film in 2013 called Bell, right? And it's like a period drama. I suppose you could pin it down to things like Downton Abbey and stuff like that. I'm not a fan of films like that. I'm not a fan of anything like that. And when I saw that this was Benjamin Button and it was about a boy who reverses backwards, he ages backwards. So he kind of, he's, he's an old man to begin with and then he gets younger. And I thought, we're going to go through like, I'm assuming it's like the 50s and the 60s. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to watch this. Do I not want to watch this? And then I watched the trailer and I just thought, this isn't Fincher. This is, this is really soppy romantic and no, I'm not really feeling this. So I've still not got around to it. I don't know if I am going to watch it. I suppose I should do for the sake of it. But what did you like out of the half that you watched, Sam? Well, I suppose <laughs> it's not good by saying I only watched half because there's probably loads of key bits that I've missed. I think the acting's strong um, in it. And I think when I watched it, it was, I think I caught it at a very sad moment, whatever that was. And it was powerful, actually. Um, and it really, you should think that that should make me want to watch the rest of the film um, because in that moment or that half that I was watching, it, it did blow me away. It was really good. And I think Kate Blanchett and I think Brad Pitt does a really good job. And it, it's really sad as well. But the problem that I had with it, and again, it, it, this is nothing against Fincher or anything um, because it's such a good film, but it's too epic. It's too epic. Right. And that's the problem again. And how bad is it saying that, really? That's a terrible thing because films that are that good should be watched all the time. But it's too it's too much. It, it goes in the Titanic box and, you know, it's like yeah. too long. 
know his I know his films are long, but I could watch Gone Girl again, for example. Um, it's just it's a little bit too powerful emotionally. I've got to be in the mood for films like that. I've got to be really in the mood, like Titanic, whatever. It, it could be other films, but like for example, if you said you were going to put Endgame on, um, that's a big film and it's quite long, but I don't think I need to think as much or there's not enough emotional turmoil. Well, there was be. I think there is, but I mean, you know, I can, <laughs> I can watch that, but it's easy watching. But yeah, it's just a bit epic. I've got to be in the mood, uh, but I don't want to take anything away from the film. And I think I'd do it a disservice by saying anything more than that, because I think there's a lot of people that would say this is an excellent, excellent film. And his awards obviously suggest that. So it'd be wrong to say anything more. It was good from what I watched on it. I should probably watch the other half. I can't tell you why I haven't watched the other half because I don't know myself. I don't know why. I just haven't. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those weird ones where I feel like we're kind of kicking the tires out of the pram a little bit and going, we don't want this Fincher. We don't like him being all softy and whatever. Seven. I want more we want, seven. We want seven. We want to go and watch Panic Room again. But it's like, you know, I just... I just I'm assuming this has got an audience for somebody because obviously it's done really well with itself. So fair play to it for that. But for whatever reason, I just I don't think I'm going to get round to it. But I'm on the same yeah. as you, mate. I'm on the same wavelength because I feel yeah. exactly the same. So obviously there must be people out there who know it's a good film but just don't fancy it. And I bet there's a lot of films that fall into that sort of category. There must be films where people think, I know it's a good film, but it's just not for me. I mean, this is the thing. So I think it all comes down to what you expect from the director. 2010 social network which again i think is a bit of a different film for him it's not yep. necessarily dark in theme um although there are quite kind of i suppose corrupt themes thematic themes running through it so this was um written by aaron sorkin which i think is one of the big things that pulls it together because this is a fantastic script uh it was adapted from the 2009 book the accidental billionaires and it's the founding of facebook it's the and the resulting lawsuits that came from that Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg, which I think is kind of the quintessential Jesse Eisenberg sort of role for me. I can't, I, I, it's not that I don't like him, but I feel like in Zombieland he's a little bit weedy and a little bit kind of moany and complaining and I'm, 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 not, I'm not too keen on you. And he's, he's rubbish as Lex Luthor. Like he's not intimidating at all. But him as Mark Zuckerberg, yeah, yeah, you've nailed that on the edge. You've got that right there. The problem is, can he do anything else? He, he seems to place. He tries to play different characters, but he, you you just you, you can them themes keep coming through in most of the characters he plays. And um, it's like, for example, I liked the film Now You See Me. Yes, yes. And I think he's good in that, but I just think you're right. I think he nails it with this because it's part of like how he is anyway. But some of the other ones, like I don't think he can pull certain things off. Because of Lex Luthor was uh, that was his worst for me. I don't know what the, the angle they were going with. I don't think that was uh, Jesse's mainly fault. It might have been the direction that he was given. But oh, it's, I don't like the Lex Luthor in that at all. That was the, one of the worst things for me. It's he's really it's really bad. I mean, I'll fully agree with you on um, now. You see me. I really like that film. Yeah, um, yeah, and I'll give him a pass for that. Um, Andrew Garfield as Eduardo Savarin. Um, who I think actually is the best thing about this film. I think Andrew Garfield in Social Network is fantastic, and he really kind of gets that. Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker, and then Army Hammer as the Winklevoss twins, which I think that's a good dual performance for Army Hammer. I think he's done himself well there. Uh, yeah. doing both of them. Facebook, um, in terms of staff and Zuckerberg and all that kind of stuff, weren't necessarily involved in the film. 
Um, Eduardo Saverin himself was a consultant for the book. And so this was released in 2010. Again, a lot of kind of awards and plaudits came its way. So it was that it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Actor for Eisenberg, and it won Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Film Editing. Just in that, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's scores for these films, so Social Network, Gone Girl, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, I think are fantastic. And among some of the best film like composed work that I think Trent Reznor always brings it, doesn't he? Yeah, he's up there with Hans Zimmer for me in terms of like my favourite kind of film scores. Um, again, the, the the upsetting thing about that that I'm looking at is that there was no nomination for Andrew Garfield for Best Supporting Actor, and I just feel like again he smashed it in that film. Um, it won, it received awards for Best Motion Picture Drama, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Original Score at the Golden Globes, and it was the 27th in the uh, 100 films considered the best of the 21st century. So again, it's one of these kind of like high profile films. I really enjoyed this. I went to go and see this at the cinema. I watched it a couple more times after that. I've kind of, you know, I own it, all that kind of business. And again, this is one that we will go back to. And I think it it manages to make, and it sounds on paper, it's a bit of a kind of like meh, but this is the story of Facebook. How did you make Facebook? And you've got a two and a half hour kind of film out of it. And again, this is one that I really like. There is, there's one scene that irks me, and this is just because I noticed it is that when we go to the boat race where the Winklevoss twins are, Fincher used miniatures, and I can always tell that it's a miniature because it just looks like he's run a camera over like a model village and there's like fake boat in the middle of the lake. Um, but that's just me. But the one the one piece of dialogue that I think is great that comes out of this one is um, the, the Winklevoss twins are kind of arguing about what they're going to do and what, you know, what um, Mark Zuckerberg's going to do. And um, he says... Yeah, but look at me. I'm I'm six foot two. I'm two hundred and fifty pounds, and there's two of me. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, no one's going to argue with you two, are they? Um, but yeah, what do you reckon to Social Network? Yeah, really good film. I really enjoyed it, and I found it really interesting. I don't know where the truth and how factual it, but I found it really interesting because I was obviously Facebook is a massive phenomenon to find out a little bit about how it was created, how it was started. Eisenberg was spot on, I think. I can imagine Mark Zuckerberg to be similar. I might be wrong. But yeah, for me, the one that steals the show is Andrew Garfield again. I think I enjoyed his character. Justin Timberlake actually brings good performance, um, which I thought was really, really good. Um, There's some stuff that I thought, no, he doesn't deliver, but he really does on this. And I just, I thought that overall it was a really, really good film, but I, I thought there was a lot of bits in it with with an old Finch, but I think this is where Fincher's trying different things here. Like we've looked at his film so far, and maybe that's probably why I've, I'm a bit shocked. But every time we look, we go, we'll say, oh well, this wasn't quite what Fincher does. This wasn't. But Fincher seems to be doing something different every time. He did Seven. He's got Benjamin Button, Panic Room, and then he's got he's got different types of things that he likes to play with. And then we're going to go on to Gone Girl and some others. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I think he delivers it here, and there's a lot of funny bits in there as well. Um, I just, I really enjoyed this one. I'd watched this one over and over again. I found it interesting. And I think that the acting choices were spot on. So yeah, it's, it's well worth it on this one. Really, really good. And it's one of the best ones, I think, for me. It's up there. I think I watched this one with my wife and she she's not a massive, she, you know, she doesn't love films. I have to make her watch films, really. But she really enjoyed this film. Um, I just, I love to love films. I don't think she does. She prefers painting. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah. 
But I think you're right, though. I think we got lulled into a false sense of security of, like, for us, Finch is doing thrillers, let's keep doing thrillers, and then, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to do this. Finch doesn't belong in a box, but we think he's just going to be seven the whole way through, but he's not. So, 2011. Now, obviously, like, I write notes and stuff to read off and different things. For some reason, and I think this is just me liking the film that much, this is the longest film that I've got notes for. So I'm going to rattle through some of this. Okay. Uh, so this is, go, this is Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, um, right. which I think is his best film. I, th- I think this is David Fincher's best film, and I don't think it gets enough credit at all. So 2011 psychological crime thriller based on the 2005 novel by Swedish writer Stieg Larsson. So we both included Girl with a Dragon Tattoo in our world cinema special as picks for our top five non-English language films. So this is uh, Daniel Craig as Mikael Blomqvist and Rooney Mara as Lisbeth Salander. And it's Blomqvist's investigation to find out what happened to a woman from a wealthy family who disappeared 40 years prior. He recruits the help of Salander, a computer hacker. Sony began development of the film in 2009. Um, It took the company a few months to obtain the rights to the novel, as well as recruiting uh, Steve Zalian, the producer, and then David Fincher. The casting process was exhaustive. Craig faced scheduling conflicts and a number of actresses were considered to the role of Elizabeth Salander, including people like Eva Green, Anne Hathaway, Scarlett Johansson, Ellen Page, Natalie Portman, Jennifer Lawrence, Kelly Morgan. So again, they went through the kind of the realm of all of these different actors around about similar ages. Uh, Daniel Craig was competing with George Clooney, Johnny Depp, Viggo Mortensen and Brad Pitt for the role. And it eventually premiered in 2011. It was a critical and commercial success. It grossed a hell of a lot of money, so it got $232 million on a $90 million budget. High reviews from critics, positive reviews from critics, who praised Craig and Myra's performances, as well as the film's sombre tone. So I think this links back a little bit to the tone that we were talking about before, that we quite like of Fincher's films. And it was chosen by the National Board of Review as one of the top films of 2011. It was a candidate for a number of awards, including the Academy Award for Best Editing, and Rooney Mara was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance. And unfortunately, we never got the sequels out of it. This is the one thing that I'm kind of gutted on, that I wish we would have still had Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara and David Fincher still doing Girl Who Played the Fire and Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Originally, they were going to film them back-to-back. Whatever reason, that didn't come off, and... Um, we ended up with Girl in the Spider's Web, which I still think is a good film, but it's not as good as what probably would have come after that. Um, but again, I, I love this. I like I like the original. I like the original Swedish version. It was my number three pick in our five uh, world cinema films. Our film was not in the English language. And I prefer this version. I prefer the American version. Maybe in a kind of, again, possibly narrow-minded way that it's easier for me to kind of um, relate to or access, if you want to kind of put it that way. But I think that Daniel Craig is fantastic. I think Rooney Mara is fantastic. I think actually the whole cast and crew are superbly placed. I think they've got the right people in for the right different um, kind of roles. Christopher Plummer being Henrik Vanger, um, Stellan Skarsgård being in there as well. I think it's just well acted, well shot, well directed, just everything well written. And I think it's just... Yeah, it's it's up there with one of my favourite films of all time. And when we get round to the 2011 top 10, spoiler alert, it's my number one. Um, but yeah, I just I can't. This is just one film that I will go back to all the time. And and there's some gruesome scenes in it. There's some kind of like really brutal scenes in it. And 
again, I, I kind of get myself rolled into this false sense of security where I start watching it and I think, this would be a really good film to show, like, my year 11s on Enigma and Mystery. And then I, we get to the scene with, like, a social worker and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, it's an 18 and this happens. Never mind. Forget that. Sack that off. Just keep it in your own collection. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> but what do you reckon to the American remake then? Yeah, I think that this is probably... It rivals Seven. I think these are my two favourite films that he's done, really. Um, we loved this. Me and my wife loved this film. Um, it made us watch the Swedish trilogy. We definitely loved the American one better. I think Craig brings it. I think, like you said, there's all the actors bring the Ray game for this. I'm, I'm so gutted that it did so well and they didn't make the sequels. We were gutted. We really wanted the sequels, but obviously you, you've explained it so well. I think everyone was feeling that. And then it, it feels like a bit of a slap in the face when you get that reboot. No offence to Claire Foy and the, the new one that they brought out. I've not even, but that tells me everything because I didn't want to watch it. Because for me, I couldn't invest in a different actress playing it because I wanted to see what happened with um, Rooney Mara's um, Lisbeth. But... The story's really good. Again, it has that darkness. Fincher sort of comes back in there, brings a little bit of that tone back. He gets away from Benjamin Button and starts coming back this way again. And, um, yeah, really good. And I love how it's shot. I mean, do you not think, like, the films that he makes, I don't know if there's um, a glaze over them or whatever, but there's such, it's, it's fantastic how they're shot, you know. And I just think that the ending, had it had me all the way along. I didn't really guess any earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to think about what's wrong with the film, to be honest. I, the only thing I can say is I wish that they would have got them sequels together. I think they had problems with the writing of it and it was delays as always. And that was the biggest disappointment. I think we really wanted to see them. The audience deserved them to. We deserve them. Yeah. You know, if we can get the Snyder cut, let's get the Fincher finishing the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. Yeah, exactly. But they've gone and rebooted it now, haven't they? Oh, yeah, that'll be it now. I'm just looking at the uh, the box set that I've got for the uh, the soundtrack. So mm. it's massive, this soundtrack. It's over three discs. It looks like it's in one of them cases that, like, if you bought your dad something like Top 50 Driving Songs from Asda, it's in something like that. Three discs for a soundtrack. That's mental. And again, just as long as Fincher and Ross and uh, Reznor can keep working together, I'll be a happy person. That'll be me all over. Same with the Gone Girl one. So speaking of Gone Girl... 2014, jumping forward three years now, we're into Gone Girl. Mm. So American psychological thriller directed by Fincher again, screenplay by Gillian Flynn based on her 2012 novel of the same name. We've got Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, Tyler Perry, Neil Patrick Harris. So it's set in Missouri and the story begins as a mystery that follows the events surrounding Nick Dunn, who becomes the prime suspect in the sudden disappearance of his wife, Amy Dunn. Um, and received, again, well-received by critics. It grossed over $369 million so far. Not so far. It's not going to come out again, is it? Um, and it, it is the highest-grossing film for David Fincher. And Rosamund Pike's performance as Amy was particularly praised as she yeah. was nominated for an Oscar, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, and the Screen Actors Guild Award. And it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Director for Fincher and a Golden Globe, uh, the BAFTA as well, for the adapted screenplay. And again, I think if, if you were to kind of sit me down with the double bill, I'll happily do Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl back to back because not necessarily that they're kind of similar, although I suppose they are in themes and things like that. But I, I was aware of the book. I'd not read the book. 
because um, as with most things, I'm a bit lazy and I won't read the book and I'll just sooner go and watch the film. But I think for mystery and enigma, that point, and again, this is spoilers, but this is six years old now. So, you know, that's your fault if you've not got around to it yet. When it's just revealed that she's still alive, I was, what? what is this? What's going on here? I was convinced she was dead. I was convinced she was dead all the way through it. And I thought we were in the position of an unreliable narrator where we were like, we're supposed to like Nick Dunn, we're supposed to like Ben Affleck, but actually he's cut, he's, you know, he's done his wife in. And then all of a sudden she's like, yeah, F you, whatever. I'm chucking stuff out the window, stuffing my face with Cheetos. I'm going to get yeah. her away. I'm going to drive down here, <laughs> drive down here, go and meet all these new people, die me here a little bit, and then that's it. And even her little story of like, these people that she's supposedly friends with clocking onto the fact that she's got a lot of money, they steal the money from her, where can she turn next? Or wait a minute, she's going to turn to the obsessive rich boyfriend so she can go and kind of survive on it, basically. I mean, that brutality of that scene where she lures him into bed and then slits his throat, my God, like I wasn't expecting that. And again, this is the false sense of security. I was all in for like, oh, this is a good Fincher thriller. Oh, wait a minute, it does brutality really well. Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, I love this. I think this is great. Again, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I think this is, again, probably number three on the list. Um, I can't decide between Seven and Girl and Dragon Tattoo, but this would come straight after. Um, great performance. Rosamund Pike here steals the show. Um, as And, well, there is just sort of like a dark edge to it. It's almost so dark. It's almost Sharon Stone dark. Um, she almost goes that dark, to be honest. It's a uh, instinct. Yeah, it's just that dark. But um, I think the film itself had me all the way through. I couldn't work it out, like you just said, and that is the makings of it. It was really good. But so did Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I just found them really, really good films. And then um, it had it made me laugh. Me and my wife were laughing a lot. Do you know when she's um, watching it on TV unfold and yeah. she's just in her face and she really lets herself go, doesn't she? But then like when she's desperate again, She's like back in shape, trying to lure that guy back in. Yeah. And then the biggest thing that I uh, was was really intrigued is when Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck meet up again and there's this sort of games behind the TV cameras yeah. and um, she's trying to trap him again. But, do you know, maybe I have different opinions on this, but what's your take on it? What is she after? Because at the end she wants to have a baby with him um, and sort of traps him. What's her deal, though? Like, I think... What's she trying it's, to achieve? Obviously, she's gone back to him, and there's a bit of a knowing, isn't there? There's a bit of a nod and a wink of, yeah, I know you've you've played all this, and we're on to you, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, we can't necessarily do anything about it because if I go and tell, you'll go and tell on things that I've done, and all this kind of stuff. I think, weirdly, it's almost like a female empowerment point of view or perspective, where she's saying to him like. I've got you now. You can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere. We're stuck with each other. So let's just kind of do it. And I think as well, it was almost in the way of her saying to Ben Affleck or her saying to, you know, um, what's he called? Dunn, Nick Dunn. Yeah. That Amy's saying to Nick Dunn, like, you've got complacent. You've got lazy. You're using me for X, Y, and Z. I know that you're using me for X, Y, and Z. You think you're in control here, but actually... I'm in control because I can just do this very, very easily and I'm smarter than you are. So let's just know where we both stand from this point on. Um, but again, I think it's it's great in it, that little reveal at the end. And, you know, it's I really like the foreshadowing of it where 
we start off with him and Amy's head and she just looks up to him and then we end with that kind of similar shot but actually you're reading her expression a little bit differently because you're like she's crazy she's sinister you don't trust her I had, to, I had to look into it a bit and because he was doing Batman versus Superman sh- just after making this film, they had to tell him to tone down on the gym. Um, right. Yeah, and that was the biggest thing I read into. So every time I watch it, I always watch how like his blazers are like probably, probably bursting out his blazer because they were trying to really bulk him up ready for his next project. And I think Fincher had to tell him to calm down until the project's finished um, because right. I think he was, he was trying to, he was getting a bit too big. And I think they thought... Um, what's he called? The character Nick Dawn. Nick, Nick Dawn, yeah. He's been hitting the gym all like throughout this film, and we need to be careful here because like in his in his morning depression, he's been pumping iron a bit too much. Yeah, and it wouldn't have been believable. They didn't want Arnie acting this this sort of film, so I think they had to tell him to tone it down until he had finished the project fully. It is really smart as well because there are a couple of points in it where obviously at the beginning we're kind of going along with this and we're going, all right, so Ben Affleck's our guy. We like Ben Affleck. Did he kill her? Did he not kill her? So he's staying at his sister's house. Oh, wait a minute. His squeeze has come round. His little girlfriend's come round. Oh, you little, you know, and you're not, you don't like him at that point. And then there are, there are certain points as well where there was one, it's, it's when they're kind of flashing back a little bit. And obviously she's the one that's got the money. He's not, not necessarily got anything. And she comes home from work one day and she's like, all right, so you bought a games console. Yeah. I just thought I'd shoot some fucks. All right. You've bought a new laptop. Yeah. I need to write some stuff. Well, you, hang on a minute, whose money are you spending here? Mm. And it's just like those little things where it's, we cannot like him and it's fine that we don't like him. But at the same time, we can think that she's a bit conniving. And again, that's fine as well. Evil. Evil, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, so look into the future. We'll get into his little TV stuff in a minute or the little bit of TV stuff that he's done. There's supposed to be a film coming out this year on Netflix called Mank um, sometime yeah. in October. Uh, again, this is an American biographical film about the screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz and his battles with director Orson Welles over a screenplay credit for Citizen Kane in 1941. Uh, this is obviously directed by Fincher and it's based on a script written by his father, Jack. And I think it, I, I think I'm right in saying that his dad has died and David has kind of unearthed the screenplay and he's kind of rolling with it on that. And it's got Gary Oldman um, in the title role. I'm looking forward to it just because it's been a while since we've had a Fincher film, so we've been six years on. But at the same time, I'm hesitant for the same reason I was hesitant for Benjamin Button because I'm a bit like, oh, is this going to be, you know, are we going to enjoy this? Are we going to like this? Are we not? So, but again, this links into his kind of working relationship with Netflix because you mentioned before Mindhunter. So that kicked off in 2017. And there's been, I think, two seasons of that so far. I'll admit, I've only seen maybe just over half of season one. Yeah. I didn't finish season one because, again, it was one of these that I was watching with my wife and she kind of just lost track of it. Then we just stopped watching it. But I do think I want to get back to it because I really like the sensibility of it. I like the writing in it. And I really like Jonathan Groff's performance in it as well. I think he's great. Um, but have you seen all of them? Seen all of them. Watched season one, season two as well. Season one was fantastic. Uh, season two was good. Yeah. It loses a little bit of momentum. It still brings a lot of the same themes from the first one, but I feel like it didn't bring anything new to the table. And I think people fell 
that, that it went a bit flat. Plus, the story wasn't as good compared... The second series doesn't really explore some of the likeable things I liked in the first one. It kind of goes a bit flat. So, it's good, but the first season is way better. Yeah. Um, and then, similarly as well, we get House of Cards. Now... seen it. You've never seen House of Cards. I think you'll like it, to be honest. Um, I must admit, though, and this is maybe where we just kind of stand on it, is that we really liked, I think, the first two seasons, maybe maybe up to the third season. We lost track a little bit when he, slight spoiler, when he finally becomes president, because it's a bit like we much prefer the character of Francis Underwood trying to get things and the things that he goes out of his way to do to achieve something. But we've not watched, because obviously with the kind of everything that came out about Kevin Spacey and the Me Too movement and stuff, they sacked him off the final season and basically they kill him off screen. They just say, you know, Francis died, whatever. And Robin Wright's character takes his place as president. Is that his connected wife? Yeah. We watched the first episode of it and just never got round to the rest of it because it just felt, it felt different and... It, I'm not necessarily saying that oh we should get Kevin Spacey back and do a final season. He doesn't he doesn't deserve that, but it just felt really different. And again, we kind of lost track on that a little bit. It also says that he was an exec producer on Love, Death and Robots, but I'm not too familiar with that. I'm not necessarily sure what that is. I think it's a couple of short things. So very quickly then, we've already mentioned quite a lot of this, um, but just to talk through kind of frequent themes and collaborators and stuff like this. So I found an article written by a guy called Darren Franchish, I think is the right, right way of pronouncing it, on Entertainment Weekly, that says four signs that you know you're watching a David Fincher film. So the master plan and the master planner, so that would be like John Doe in Seven, Tyler Durden, Fight Club, serial killers, loneliness, digital effects, darkness and singular lights, obsession, so that links back to Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac, a passage of time, modern noir, Brad Pitt, just in general, uh, Trent Reznor, Old World Glamour, and that was more of a reference to his music videos, so things like Suit and Tie and Vogue, science fiction in a modern age, so people being afraid of technology, social network, um, the rise of media in Zodiac that kind of comes into obsession, men who destroy themselves, and women who fight back. And I think yeah. the women who fight back is a big one. So for me... In terms of, like, we usually end these with, like, what's your favourite and all that kind of stuff. You've already mentioned that Seven is probably your favourite. I think it's Dragon Tattoo, but then I can easily say that Gone Girl, Panic Room, Seven, Zodiac, Social Network, they're all great. I don't think we're necessarily dealing with bad films here, but if I was to suggest any to anybody, to as maybe a starting point, go back to Panic Room. Watch Panic Room again, and I think you should watch Panic Room again. Yeah, I believe that should be on my list to watch that one again. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week with the next instalment of the franchise series where Sam and I will be joined by new guest Tim Hyam to discuss the many different incarnations of Batman on film. You can help support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other and I'll see you next time.